everyone to our new episode of Global.Science, a podcast on science education and communication. Uh, I'm Fabia Battistuzzi, one of your co-hosts. And I'm Lev Hordisky, the other co-host. Okay, so today we're going to have a slightly different conversation that will take us hopefully on a journey that goes beyond the science. So my question to you, Lev, is have you ever been to an arts museum? An arts museum? Oh, what a profound question. (laughs) I am full of profound questions. (laughs) (laughs) So we did the regular museum before and now the arts museum. Yes, because you dragged me to them. Uh, so. Yes, because I'm trying to educate you. Did it work? <laughs> Not really. But I'll keep trying. <laughs> it's a lost cause. But yes, I have been to an art museum. Have you? I think we just kind of gave away the game there. <laughs> <laughs> I have. But the question is, what, what did you think of an arts museum? How You are a scientist, obviously. You have a scientist background. How did you look at arts through the lens of a scientist? Well, mostly I like going to the modern art section because I know it drives you nuts. (laughs) Yes, I am not a modern arts person. I personally like the more classic art, in particular the Impressionist. That is my favorite uh, piece and I don't like statues. For some reason, I really do not like statues. Okay, now that I did not know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, see, you learned something new about me. (laughs) This podcast is full of new information. (laughs) <laughs> so what is it about the Impressionist art that, that really appeals to you? For me, it's because it's a representation of the world that is fuzzy. And uh, when I was a kid, I always liked them uh, since I was a kid. And when I was a kid, uh, it was primarily because uh, I... I thought that it was an interesting way of seeing the world because not everybody sees the world in the same way. And so making it fuzzy to me was a way of representing that diversity, right? That not everybody sees it the same, the same way. But now that I have uh, this sort of scientist background, science background, I, I like it because it kind of shows the uncertainty in reality. And, uh, it's something that has scientists that we have to get comfortable with because we don't fully understand the reality the way we would like it to. That's very much, that's very much true. And for me, I don't really like modern art, but for me, I use it as a tool because I find that I have trouble understanding people or, or how they view the world or how they interact with the world. And because to me, a modern art piece or a contemporary art piece can be interpreted in so many different ways and it could trigger emotions, like how you feel about something, like why do you hate that piece? Um, Or why does that piece appeal to you? Why or why not? It's a way for me to understand how someone else's mind works. And then uh, it's a way for me to compare it to how my mind works and how I perceive the same piece. So it's not that I particularly like modern art. I just like viewing my friends and people I'm getting to know. I like to view their reaction to it to try to better understand them. And I think that's a very good point because it's it's kind of the point of art, right? It's a way for us humans to connect to each other and understand our, our own thought processes and the thought processes of the people around us 
just based on the way we interpret something that we are looking at or we are reading. And, uh, and I think it might actually strengthen us as scientists because it allows us to see, to, to, to interpret things in a different way. Have you used art in any of your classes? I haven't yet. I had this idea that I wanted to try, but I didn't get a chance to do it yet. Um, but, but I've known the people who have used it. Uh, and I know that in bio, there are, there are even uh, uh, competitions on, you know, who can make the most creative Petri dish by culturing microbes that make different colors as they grow. And so they create all these different colonies and they make flowers and paintings. They're super awesome. And that's how COVID got started. Well, maybe not, <laughs> but maybe something else could start that way. Who knows? <laughs> I used art in the classroom, especially, um, it, it was interesting. In one of the classes I was teaching, at, uh, I was teaching astronomy classes at Chandler Gilbert Community College uh, back in Arizona. And um, their final project was to connect, uh, connect something they learned in astronomy to their major, something they actually cared about. And one of my classes had a lot of artists and uh, they came up with some great things. Some of them did computer art. One of them did an advertising campaign for restaurants all around the uh, solar system. And it was just fantastic yeah. to see how they utilized the art. And it actually made it clear. And it's like, I wish I had asked what their majors were when the class started. I probably did, but I forgot instantly. Um, but one class had a lot of artists and it was the class that was the quietest. I, I thought, I was like, I, I asked them, I thought artists were more uh, enthusiastic and open and, and would have been a lot more talkative. One of my students replied with, are you crazy? We're all kind of like insular and into ourselves. That's why no one in that class talked. Like, oh yeah, the other class I think was all lawyers. So that explains that. That would explain the difference. Yes, very much so. So how about we introduce our guest that I'm sure has her own perspective on this topic. So uh, Alisa um, Bandalin, she is uh, um, an undergraduate student, a bio major at Oakland University with a minor in studio art and another minor because she's an overachiever um, in deaf studies. And I met Alisa in 2020, at the beginning of 2020 when she joined my lab. Uh, and I've been trying to transform her into a bioinformatician since then. And I realized that bioinformatics, which sounds very dry, and art actually go together because apparently they fit both in Alisa's brain. So Alisa, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. So tell us a little bit, what, uh, how did you end up going to a major in science and a minor in, uh, in studio art? What draw you to, uh, to this kind of education? I'll first yeah. ask, what is studio art? Oh, good point. Yeah, so um, there's like multiple different minors in art. You could do an art history minor where you're really studying the history of art. Studio art is doing more of a hands-on approach where you're actually creating the art. And that could be any sort of um, medium, whether it's drawing or painting or sculpting or things like that. Um, so that's really the focus of studio art is making the art. And that's what I like to do. So do you have a pref pre 
prefer the medium that you like to work with? I like to do everything and anything. Like I get excited by trying the weirdest things and you name it, I probably do it. Um, one of my favorite things to do is sculpting with clay. And of course, during the pandemic, you know, it was impossible to um, go somewhere and, and you can't have a $3,000 kiln in your house. So um, I started baking and doing, that's how I started doing baking arts because you can sculpt with like um, the, some of the different things in baking. And I, yeah, I ended up collecting baking as well. <laughs> As one of Just the for, for our audience, I have seen the cakes that Alisa has baked. She makes amazing cakes, so much so that I told her, stop studying and go open a bakery. You'll make <laughs> more money. Uh, but I'm glad she decided to stay at Oakland University. <laughs> do, do you integrate any biology puns into your cakes? Um, I haven't really yet, but I did make this really cool baby Yoda cake and um, it, you know, baby Yoda stuff kind of came out during the pandemic. And at one point he eats, uh, frog eggs. And so I had a really fun time, you know, trying to figure out what I was using for the different like goos and gels and frog eggs. So I used, um, I used boba, like, you know, the bubble tea bubbles, but I would use mm -hmm. clear ones. Um, and it was really fun trying to kind of figure that sort of thing out what would be gooey and, um, similar. I did find though that I ended up becoming obsessed with macarons and they are so finicky and so precise that it was very much like chemistry where you had to measure the exact amounts using the scales and putting it in at the right times in the ovens and letting it sit out and doing this banging on the table and all these crazy things. My mom, it drove my mom nuts. But um, it was very, it was very scientific. It was very similar. And I think that's also why I liked it. Did it drive your mom nuts because the recipes involved nuts? No, because I had to bang it on the table every time. <laughs> and, she's, and she's trying to work in the house because everyone was, you know, sent home for the entire year. And she's like, you're banging again. <laughs> Amit, does she do that in your lab when you ask her to well, do some bioinformatics? We have been remote and I don't think she has tried to bang the computers yet, but who knows, maybe next time she's in the lab, I'll find her smashing the keyboard. I have not smashed the keyboard yet, but we have gotten close. There have been moments. Oh, I can imagine that, especially with bioinformatics. So back to the original question. Right. How did you end up in... Uh, major in bio, minor in, uh, in studio arts. Did you always knew you wanted to do that? No. So um, I've always been very artistic and very into sciences. I, I dreamed of working at NASA. Um, and so I knew I was going towards sciences in school. I didn't know which sciences. I started in chemistry, switched to biochem, and then eventually landed on bio. Um, and then I had some serious medical complications that took me out of school for a while. And when I came back, I needed some lighter classes to go along with the harder ones so I could stay a full-time student and stay in the dorms, but um, still my like stamina and endurance was not able to take full um, rigorous courses at that time. And so I didn't wanna waste credits and waste money. And I decided, you know, why not just get a minor while I was at it? So I picked up the other thing that I love, which is art. 
and decided to go along with that. And then last semester, things got a little messed up and I accidentally picked up a deaf studies minor because I can just do sign language too. <laughs> just accidentally. <laughs> it really was. I, that was not planned at all. <laughs> I think that that's interesting because a lot of people, I think, would look at your list of uh, majors and minors, see bio, studio art, and deaf studies, and see how do these all go together. But in my mind, they, they seem to fit together quite well because um, working, I think, with the disabled community, I think there's a lot of, I've, I've looked, I'm on some of the mailing lists because I want to understand how to work with those communities. And today I got an email about a sonification, uh, a sonification application uh, for uh, translating star data or what stars look like um, into sound or converting graphs into sound to help people who may not be able to, to see it or have impaired vision in, interpret, it, interpret it in a different form. And to me, it seems like there's a very strong overlap between the studio art minor and deaf studies and how it can inter, uh, inter, interface with science in ways that you can represent data in which you can perceive it in a different way. Is that something that you've thought about or, um, or is it just a coincidence? Yeah, no, that's absolutely something I thought about. Again, I didn't plan for a deaf studies minor. I just so happened to, like I already knew sign language. So I had taken one class here and then one class there and all of a sudden it just worked out. Um, but that's something I'm very interested in as well. I know you would never know just by listening to a podcast like this, but I also am in, I'm a wheelchair user. Um, so I've done a lot of disability advocacy and through that have a lot of friends who are also disabled. And so that is something that I continuously think about when incorporating, you know, my studies and where I want to go in the future. And yeah, project ideas come up in my head. And Fabio was actually talking about a similar sort of uh, sound representation of data, um, which also got me thinking of different ways to represent data. And then I had this idea of taking, do you remember those toys when you're a child? It's those nails um, in like a board and you like put your hand in and they stick out. And yeah, I was yeah. thinking, well, what if you could do that with like pictures and you could engineer each nail to go out a certain amount and then somebody who's blind could then feel the picture. Um, and yeah, there's little things like that. I just Think about sometimes too. So yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in that. But that actually would be a wonderful idea. Imagine if we could have something like that to represent graphs. I mean, you could have a graph that is basically in 3D so that somebody can feel it and they can see what we look at on a paper. Why not have it in 3D? I mean, that would be brilliant. And not only that, it would be a board that could basically erase itself and start over. And they do similar things with these braille writers. I have a friend who's blind and um, the buttons kind of stick out and that's how she reads along a line. Um, but I was thinking doing it with like a, as a screen, if it was a whole sort of screen and you could feel the screen. Um, yeah, I think that'd be cool. Right? <laughs> do you feel like art is a way to make science more interpretable or more accessible? Um, uh, to other people. Absolutely. I think people see art and science as these two separate entities, and I don't see them as separate. I think people, you know, you. I mean, sure, knitting doesn't seem like a whole lot <laughs> of science in it, but 
I think everything could be, you know, combined in a different way. And I just think that the world is much more integrated than people seem to think of it. Everyone kind of brings it into its own separate categories and the world isn't like that. It's all integrated and you can definitely combine everything to be together. Yeah. And we actually have a a common friend that does um, uh, cross stitching and she makes this, uh, you know, the little they're literally just little works of arts that uh, but they are science-based and so she has you know she has made all the planets she's an astrobiologist like us and so she has made all the planets in cross stitching and you know different chemical formulas in cross stitching it's like yeah that's a fun (laughs) way of putting the science into an arts medium it's uh, and I I am sure that you know, you would never forget a formula, chem- a chemical formula, after you have cross-stitched it, because it takes a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so, I was going to ask about bioinformatics, and do you see any artwork in bioinformatics? Because I know Fabia has shown me these little trees of life, and it just looks like uh, just spirals of uh, spirals of little bacterial names that are too difficult to pronounce. And I don't think Fabia could pronounce most of them anyway. Hey, I can. I have a Latin background. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, as was, as said before, I think you can combine anything and, and create art. I mean, art can be anything is the cool thing. Um, and so you could make your trees look really cool. And I think trees I love phylogenetic trees. I think they look awesome. Um, You could just print one out and hang it on your wall and call it art because it would be really cool looking. (laughs) Um, See, that's why she's in my lab, but we think alike. (laughs) So have you charged her with decorating your lab, doing the lab decor? (laughs) If we hadn't gone online because of the pandemic, I would have, because if you remember, I have this idea that I want to make a tree with a, a plush uh, giant microbes. I want to make a tree on uh, on the wall with a plush giant microbes uh, and uh, basically yarn so that we look like crazy people. I'm so in, <laughs> I'm so in, that, that's, yes, yes. <laughs> so for those who don't know what a phylogenetic tree is, because um, I'm assuming since most of the people we've talked to have been geologists, we might have a geology fan base or more likely just my mother's listening to it. What is a phylogenetic tree? <laughs> So phylogenetic tree is a graphical representation of the history of life that basically shows how different species are connected to each other. Um, And so, you know, you think of us humans, our closest relatives are chimps. And so we would be very close in a phylogenetic tree, us and the chimps. And the next closest branch would be gorillas that are the next closest species to us uh, and the chimp. And so it's a way of representing life um, that basically shows how uh, it started from a common ancestor and then it diverged into all these different, uh, the different species and the biodiversity that we have today. So that's pretty much the basic, uh, basic explanation. <laughs> I was hoping Alyssa would answer that so we can quiz her. <laughs> that's why I didn't let her because this is not supposed to be a pop-up quiz. <laughs> So, Alisa, I'm curious about some things, a slightly different take on this. So, I 
I am a big fan of uh, putting science into uh, the arts, but I think to a certain extent uh, is uh, in a sense possible to look at uh, science from, uh, from an art artist's point of view without actually changing the medium, right? So there is a sort of a um, way of interpreting data, seeing patterns that seems to be common between artists and scientists. And so I'm curious to hear your, your opinion if you have ever encountered that your arts background has actually helped you uh, in interpreting data, scientific data. I think it absolutely has. I think that personally, I haven't had enough experience to have come across raw scientific data that would allow me to interpret it differently. Um, I, you know, I've worked in research labs, but the majority of the research that I've done have been at the very beginning of projects. And so we never always, we didn't always have data to really interpret. I was, um, I was fortunate enough to learn how to set up an experiment and plan out and, and learn everything in that aspect, but I wasn't at the you know, final stages where I, I got the information. Um, but when looking at my classwork, um, there have been a lot of times where I see patterns very easily because of that, or when studying, I can just color code things and I remember it. Actually, when I when I took anatomy, for instance, we had to memorize which nerves innervated different organs. And it was just lists. And I just could not get that in my head. And so I drew, I forgot, I don't remember what like it's called, but when you connect the different nerves to the different, so I drew on one side of the lit, on one side of the paper was the nerves, and on the other side were the organs. And I drew little symbols for the organs. Um, easy symbols that could easily be drawn out on the exam so I could just copy them real quick. And then I connected them with different colors because multiple nerves would, would innervate multiple organs. So some of them would cross over. Um, and it, it turned out to be so simple when you did that. Like the list did not make sense. There was so much to memorize, but that, that one picture made it so simple and so easy to remember. And I think being able to cross over arts and sciences like that has really helped. I think that's a very good point because sometimes uh, when I, uh, you know, with my students and when I was teaching, um, I would have sometimes the students that came to me with, you know, uh, questions about how to study better because the materials sometimes it's it's hard and it's it's a lot right it's a lot that you have to retain in just one semester um and uh, and i think learning how to um represent the data or the content of a course in different ways is a very powerful way uh, to help you study. And it's it's a skill that I think it's useful no matter what you do, because I still use it now. When I have to understand a new project, I I draw it out. That's what mm -hmm. I do, because otherwise I it, it doesn't get into my head. So I need to draw something out. So as a student, what can a teacher do to help you 
um, internalize some of these more complex concepts. Because I know definitely when I try to draw on the board, it's almost a crime against humanity. Um, but uh, I just have stick figures everywhere. And usually something catastrophic is happening to them because I'm teaching physics. And so I throw them off a of cliffs and uh, <laughs> have boulders falling on them. Um, but are, are there other ways you could think of that go beyond just sketching things, sketching a diagram on a board that you think the teachers could do that could be fun both for the teachers and, and the students and help them internalize uh, some of the stuff use, using art as a medium? I think like from what you explained, creating those memories is what really helps not only to understand the topic and what you're trying to get across to the student, but also helps us remember it for like the long-term, not even just the short-term exam, but the long-term. I remember the times where my teacher would bring in something for us to look at, even if it was small, like, wow, this is different. I don't always have a teacher bring in something for me to hold or something, you know, that they're going to tell a story about that's just different. You know, you have teachers standing in front of you lecturing day in, day out, every day, every class, and it doesn't differentiate. So by differentiating yourself, by bringing in something, by drawing those funny pictures, by creating that funny story to, to relate to your students, like you just explained, that's what I always remember. And I still remember them. All right. So, so more, more dead stick figures in my classes. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> do you think uh, um, having this, uh, you know, slightly different way, more creative way of looking at uh, material, at content in general, has a value when um, students, for example, are asked to do group work, right? Group work is, uh, is one of the banes of the existence of both the faculty and and students because it's useful but it always has issues because you know groups don't get along and then you know somebody inevitably doesn't do what they're supposed to be doing and so the rest of the group has to pick up the slack that, well, you know all that kind of stuff and, and so I always try to think of different ways of helping students engage with each other and I I wonder if sometimes having a student in a group that thinks in a slightly different way might actually be helpful for the others as well. I think it is, but sometimes it, it's also not because it all depends on the group. I mean, some people don't listen to that student. Some people may, you know, it's really sad and they should listen. Everybody should listen to somebody who thinks differently than you because you learn something, but not every student realizes that. Um, and so a lot of times that student might get ignored um, or not incorporated into the group and they become the out person sort of. And, you know, it, there's so many issues with that sort of social interaction and group projects. So like, I do agree with that and support that, but then there's times where it doesn't work yeah. and you worry about those times, you yep. know, and you hope that's not you. Um, I think that's that's an interesting point because it kind of um, resonates with what happens, you know, after you are a student that sometimes even in the scientific community, if you are a scientist and an artist, sometimes other scientists look down on you because they say, oh, you are not a serious scientist. 
uh, mm -hmm. because that's not all you do 24 7 365 days of your life um and what, so you sleep what's wrong with you <laughs> Yes, sleep for me is a form of art because I have very complicated dreams so sometimes. Often I don't remember it, but when I remember them, they're very complicated. So it's my own way of expressing myself. <laughs> but but yeah, I think it's uh, it's important to keep talking about this integration because it's something that sometimes you know, there are a lot of people that agree on it and there are other people that don't necessarily see it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So if, um, if you go to a scientific conference, would you, would you be supportive in including a baking competition as part of a scientific conference from now on? Of course, a baking competition anywhere is fun. <laughs> I think I may agree with that. <laughs> I agree. I'll test it. I'm the tester, especially if there's chocolate involved. I'm testing everything. <laughs> I don't know. Your dinner typically includes just a bowl of cereal, so I'm not sure if you would win that competition. <laughs> That's why I need the baking competition and I can test it. So I, then I can go home and I don't have to make dinner, which I don't want to. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Excellent. Alyssa, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Right, so Fabia, what did you learn today? I learned that I need to start baking. Clearly, I need to learn how to bake because I can just ask Alisa to teach me, see? <laughs> so what kind of cake would you make then? Well, you make the tiramisu, well, your last tiramisu didn't come out all that great, so. No, that was a little, it, it, was, it was an outlier. Usually my tiramisu comes out really well. So that was just an outlier, that's it. See, and so I'm a scientist because I'm using outliers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, except I had to eat it. Well, yeah, but you'd eat anything, so you don't count. <laughs> that is true. But it, it takes me back to when there was the Astrobiology Science Conference uh, in, in Mesa, Arizona, 2017, where, where one of the uh, um, one of the people that was helping organize it insisted on there being like an art alley. And I, and there were just all these local artists that did space inspired work that was up, that was up there the entire conference as you had to move between one location and another. And at the end, they kind of sold them. And I think a lot of people were interested in buying it. So do you think there's a place for integrating art um, more into these scientific conferences, especially since a lot of what comes out is scientific conferences are designed for scientists to talk to each other. And it's like, like an, it's almost a nerdy, like what I did on my summer vacation. Um, <laughs> but a, a lot of what also comes out of them are these press releases that communicate some of these major findings. You'll always find like all of a sudden, one week, if you don't follow any of the, the scientific conference circuit, all of a sudden in the media, you'll find a week where there's just nonstop, you know, planets news or nonstop biology news. And it's usually because there's a conference taking place. And so all the press releases come out because that's where they start talking about, you know, you know, what I did on my summer vacation publicly for the first time. Do you think it'd be useful to start to, to think about incorporating art um, or, or like food art, sculpture, painting, or any other kind of expression into some of these conferences to help communicate some of these ideas to the public better? I think it would be really good 
for a number of different reasons. So first, because it teaches the scientists how to actually communicate with the rest of the world. We are not exactly the best at that. And so it would be good for us to get some practice. Um, second, because the scientific conferences are also a recruitment um, strategy for uh, institutions, but also in general, just for, you know, to get students interested in certain fields. Um, and so, you know, sometimes, especially in STEM, it can be difficult to recruit students um, and entering from a different perspective, like from an arts perspective, could be a very powerful way of letting everybody know that everybody is welcome and should be part of the sciences because it's just part of the world, the way it, and the way it works. And and then the last, uh, the last thing that I, I think it would be uh, really useful is uh, to have a way of um, connecting with the local community, which is why I really liked uh, that particular um, science conference because those were local, local artists. And, uh, and I think it's important for, for, the, for the sciences to show that they can connect with the local artist beyond and the local community beyond just having you know earth day or the off one hand thing that everybody does but it's it's actually a stable a stable collaboration so you're proposing that in addition to the oral sessions and the poster sessions we now have dance sessions well we could try to do that <laughs> not sure i'm the most qualified to do that but i'll i'll organize it i'll be the session organizer <laughs> are you going to have the are you going to be judging there with like the numbers like on uh, like on dancing with the stars of course of course can i comment on everybody's uh, outfit <laughs> no because you're going to hate all of them unless they're dressed in like a ball gown <laughs> <laughs> yep all right. And what do you think about the accessibility issue? Because I think that that's another interesting aspect there, that art is a way of making uh, science accessible to a lot more people. Well, see, I think uh, that really goes down to, you know, the, the term inclusion, right? It's uh, I more than accessibility and diversity and all the other terms what I really like is the term inclusion and the term of belonging because that means that no matter where you're coming from and no matter what your life has put you through it doesn't matter you belong in a certain field and I think everybody does but everybody needs to enter a field in their own way counting on their strength, putting their strength forward first, and then they will be comfortable in exposing their weaknesses and learning how to overcome them. We all do that. I mean, it's, it's the reason why I entered, how I ended up in bioinformatics. I came from biology because if I had started from computer science, I would have started crying and screaming and I would have run away um, because it's just not me. So I needed to enter from what was close to me. I love animals and so biology was natural to me. And then I ended up switching to bioinformatics for some obscure reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I still don't understand that because I've seen your database design and it's horrifying. Hey, I'm learning slowly. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. And, and let's be fair. I think a lot of our scientist friends are, are you know, closet artists. And I, I know quite a few. I'm often surprised that, you know, there, there were scientists I know that do belly dancing. There are scientists I know that do knitting. Um, I like to write and I like to draw sometimes. Um, do we have any other friends? Like, what's your secret art that you do? I, I, I haven't discovered it yet. Okay, I have my five-year-old art I like to color. And so that's my five-year-old art. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a terrible place to end, so... <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. We can all say that even uh, your inner child is welcome in the sciences. <laughs> yes, as long as they don't start smashing and breaking things in the lab. Well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sometimes that's where the most brilliant insights come from. Exactly. <laughs> but usually you end up in the hospital. All right. I hey, think that's a... <laughs> on that note, we'll see you on next time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Today's music is Comedy Jazzy Time by Red Productions from pixabay.com. Global.Science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit organization. You can learn more about what we do and give us money so that we can do it at www.sciencevoices.org.